You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Why I'll Never Make It, featuring insightful stories and conversations with fellow artists on the reality of a career in the entertainment industry. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and to find other episodes of Why I'll Never Make It or to get in touch with me, you can go to the website, winmepodcast.com. Today, my guest is Megan Carver. Now, if you happen to read the blog, which has been on a hiatus, I must admit, so hopefully over the next few months, that blog will begin again. But if you caught the blog last year, you would have read an entry by Megan Carver. She has such a fascinating and almost gut-wrenching Why I'll Never Make It story, which is why I wanted to feature her on the blog, and I'm so glad to finally have her on the podcast. And it all began for her with a meeting with a manager. She was doing an interview slash audition in order to get to know this manager and for the manager to get to know her. And after that interview, the manager had a few words for her. He said, you're very nice and you're very funny and you do good work, but there is nothing in the market for a 30-something brunette comedian. There's just nothing for you. And in today's conversation, we'll be going through what led up to that meeting, as well as the actions that Megan took after having that meeting. Megan has an inspiring story that is certainly motivating to me, and I think you'll find it to be motivating to you as well. All right, Megan, it is so good to finally have you on the podcast. Thank you. We, we, we've been kind of going back and forth on social media. You, you wrote the blog earlier, so it's nice to finally have you in the, I'm doing air quotes, studio. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, your studio is not too far away from my air quote studio, because right. I'm like just a couple blocks away, and I do the same thing in, in my studio for my podcast. Right, so. right. I mean, it's actually nice to have a home studio bringing people in or doing the recording. Yeah. Yeah, it just, it, yeah, it takes like the more comfortable and the more uh, homey it feels, I feel like the easier it is to have a conversation because oh, it's absolutely. like you're in someone else's home versus a recording. A recording studio can feel a little sterile sometimes. And with everything around. Yeah. So speaking of being in New York, the big thing with us actors is that audition season, right? right? You know, and spring and then sometimes in the fall. And so with your blog before that meeting, what was your audition season like? What was kind of going on that led up to that meeting? Yeah, so I have a little bit of a, I feel like a different story than most people who come to New York. I feel like a lot of times we hear the very typical story of like, fresh out of college, you know, early 20s, come and do the grind and working at a bar or, you know, cafe and actors that are there at five in the morning for those cattle calls and just going out with their friends mm -hmm. and living that life and, and doing everything that they can. I moved here right before I turned 30. And I within the year of moving here, I also got married and got a dog. And so I feel like I kind of skipped ahead about eight or nine years from when everybody else typically moves here. Yeah. Um, 
So because of that, I had a bit of a different experience in coming to New York. I wasn't really able to do all of those early cattle calls. Um, you know, I have a family that I need to provide for. We wanted to live in our own space instead of share with six roommates and things like that. Uh, and having a dog, you know, again, you can't really be out all day and then just pay for a dog walker in the middle of the day. You're like a grown up now. Right. This is like <laughs> when people are starting to plan for saving up for a house or when are we having a baby? I'm like, I'm going to move to New York and uproot my family and do that instead. (laughs) How how was your husband on board with all this? Oh, yeah. He's an actor as well. And we had kind of of gotten to the point, um, you know, our hometown, um, Portland, Oregon, where we had done a lot of what we wanted to accomplish. We'd worked at a lot of really great houses, a lot of different TV shows that were filming there we had gotten to be a part of. So we felt very blessed and were ready for that next step. And, and, and did you think about LA, obviously? We did. And honestly, the difference between LA and, LA and New York was that in LA, we'd need to have a car and that was more expensive than moving to New York. So we were okay. like, well, okay. might as well just move to New York. But then your rent's 2000 a week. <laughs> right, so then, exactly. <laughs> so it, it all makes up it for all, it. It all levels out. Yeah. Um, so we moved here. And because of that, because uh, I couldn't go to those really early morning auditions, I was, I felt at least I was missing out on a lot of opportunities. Mm. I couldn't go to all these auditions. And then I heard about what I didn't know, again, because I was brand new here, uh, more or less what's called pay to place, you know, where you go to places like growing studio, or you go to places like one on one. And you have an opportunity to sit down with a casting director, manager, um, any number of different people who are working in the industry, uh, and do a monologue for them or a song and get their advice on how you're presenting yourself in an audition setting, how you're presenting yourself as an actor and what you can do to change things. Sometimes that can lead to potential representation or being called in. They never promise that, but that's always kind of the hope. Because let's face it, they're still going to be looking for people like always because that's their job. Um, So I realized that I wanted to have at that point in time representation to be able to help me to get out to auditions that I wasn't able to get to because I couldn't always get to those early morning cattle calls. And so I had started going to different pay to plays um, to try to make some networking connections, really learn more about the business and what I could bring to the table. And perhaps too, what I might need to adjust or change to make myself more castable, to make myself more appealing in different areas. And so that's when and the feedback that you were getting, did you notice anything because you had had some success there in Oregon? Did you notice a difference? Or were they telling you different things that kind of a a different way of doing it? No, I I don't think it was necessarily anything. It was like, you're doing something wrong. I think it was more just adjusting to how to audition in this market specifically, Mm -hmm. knowing that in the smaller market, you have the opportunity to sing 32 bars versus 16. Uh, You have to be able to bring your full self in and really show who you are within a very short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was really the feedback I was getting more was how do we make you into the concentrated version of yourself? Right. You know, before we add the three cans of water to the juice, (laughs) let's just look at the can beforehand because that's all these people are going to have time for. So that was really more distilling down and figuring out how to bring that into the room. Oh, interesting. So people can make that decision more easily and more quickly. How did you go about that process of distilling your big, bad, wonderful self (laughs) into this little bitty, tiny 90 second pitch? (laughs) Um, 
I mean, the thing is, is that I, I went through a rebranding process. I actually worked with my good friend, Doug Shapiro. Uh, he helped out a lot with branding, figuring out like, what is my brand? If you were to, uh, say if you took this plus this, you would get Megan, what that would look like. Hmm. For me, it was, um, Jack Johnson from New Girl mixed with Heidi Blickenstaff. That's me as an actor. I see that. Yes. So how do you, so that was something I learned how to do to be able to very quickly tell someone what I am. Um, but at the same time, I was just, I find big is actually a word that I use to represent myself a lot since I have a very big personality. Right. I have big teeth. I have a big <laughs> nose and a big smile. I'm just big. And so I was having a really hard time getting to that distilled down part. And I was able to find words to define myself a little bit more succinctly, but I was still battling with how do I make myself small commercial and easy to fit into a box because I don't know if I necessarily fit into a box. Yeah. I mean, because it, it's so wonderful for us to be creative and for us to be all things to all people and we can morph and be a chameleon. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's true. Casting directors want to see us and be like, okay, I can see this and that and that. And then you, you do your scene, you do your song. They want to fit you into a slot. Right. A lot of times casting is paint by numbers. And if we're not the right number or the right paint, then they don't. Right. It's and like, sometimes I don't know what to too, do with you. Like I remember there was an earlier episode you talked about where someone came into an audition and they learned later on that unless that person fit a size four costume, mm -hmm. no one would have been considered. And that's also another thing that I don't think I realized was a part of what I was potentially bringing into the audition room, they're like, you're so great, but you don't fit the costume. There's no way you can know that. So uh, so that's when I got to the point where I was like, okay, I could use some help with getting representation uh, to be able to pitch me to the appropriate casting directors, projects, etc. People that know more about what's available in the market right now, and to be able to help put me into those puzzle pieces. Because, right, right. um, you know, I... I a, didn't have the time to get up in the morning. I mean, honestly, though, who does? Who relishes in that other like, than extreme morning whoever people? Whoever this person was who started arriving to auditions at 4 a.m., we need to, like, disbar them I know. From, the, from all acting. That's just like, not... Like, who did this? I, I don't... <laughs> I mean, I get it. You you wanted to be there prompt and on right. time. Because someone was there at 7, they so were, someone wanted someone to be there at 6. Be, yes. Well, someone wanted to be there at 5. And, and then <sighs> someone was like, well, if I work a bar shift, I can just go when I get off work and then tape it up first thing uh, at 4 in right. the morning. Yeah. So at any rate. Um, so yeah, so that's when I decided to meet with this potential manager. Um, I did a monologue and we talked a little bit about what I had done uh, previously, what I was looking for. And... He said, can I be just very honest with you, which I'm totally okay with that if someone being brutally honest. Um, he said, you're very nice and you're very funny and you do good work, but there is nothing in the market for a 30-something brunette comedian. There's just nothing for you. And I took that and I let that hit me and thought about, okay, Maybe there isn't. Maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree. Maybe I got here too late. Hmm. I've been there myself because yeah. I, I came around the same time. I was just, just around 30, 32. And yeah, and, and I had already lived. I had already kind of had all these experiences. So I thought, I'm here too late. Yeah. I came 10 years too late. And yeah. that's why it's not happening. Right, exactly. At first, I got really sad because realizing the thing that I was meant to do, the thing I'm put on this earth for, my vocation, my calling is something... There's no room for me. 
Uh, so I got really sad and then I got really fucking mad. <laughs> yeah. When his words hit you, was there any pushback? Was there any voice in you going, no, that's not true? Not at first because I wanted to really receive him. I wanted to really receive what he was saying and because he asked, can I give you some brutal feedback? Right. And I said, yes, I allowed the opportunity for that. And so I wanted to be able to allow for that advice to actually sink in and hit me, even right. if it's something I didn't want to hear. I felt like I, I needed to hear it no matter what the outcome was at the end. So there wasn't any pushback at first. Uh, but, but then, 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 you then, got mad. <laughs> then I got mad and I realized I was like, well, A, he's wrong. Like looking at shows like Marvel's Mrs. Maisel, looking at shows like Transparent, looking at shows like Shrill on Hulu is, um, amazing. And, and two, I was realizing that, yeah, there is a lot available on stage as well. I didn't understand really where that was coming from. So instead of sitting back and waiting, for a puzzle piece to come my way, knowing that I was at the mercy of whenever I was going to be able to get to a 5am cattle call as a non-union actor, I decided I'm just going to start making some work on my own. What was that the length of that journey going from you were sad about it, you took it in, and then you got mad and decided to, to take action? Like a week. I'm, okay. I'm not a patient person. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> well, well, good. At least it wasn't like, you know, two months of you just like waiting around the house right. going, poor me, what happened? No, I yeah. got, I, I'm not, a, one of my many virtues is not patience. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I got really mad and I was like, I don't like being told that. I don't like being told that that's not an option. And I had already had a couple of things simmering in my brain. Like I had written a parody of, we'll call it Death Pond, the musical, um, just to be copyright safe. Yes. Uh, and I had written a couple of other things and I had just, yeah, had some ideas percolating for what I wanted to see and what I thought would make really great content. And so being told that almost became the catalyst to making those things happen. Oh, okay. So a really sh otherwise shitty situation of literally being told, you can't do what you want to do. Right. This business has no place for you. You can't sit with us. Like, <laughs> like, like who wants to be told that? Yeah. I don't yeah. think anybody should be told that. So originally it actually spurred the feature film that I wrote called Good Chemistry, um, which is based on a, it's kind of like a throwback to eighties comedies, um, like weird science, uh, animal house, things like that. But mm -hmm. it takes all of the not so great sexist, awful things that don't hold up in a post me too world and throws that stuff out the window while also creating opportunities for LGBTQ women, minorities and stuff like that. Uh, within a feature film about women in STEM. Uh, and so I created this feature film and found a friend who also was really interested in 80s comedies. And we actually decided, what if we're meant for more than just one film? What if we're meant for more than this? Hmm. And then that's how we created Adventurous Films Productions, which is the production company that I co-founded with yeah. my friend Robin Veda. What exactly were your processes of, of like having the marquee on the door? Right. All right, we're, we're open for business. <laughs> um, I mean, first, it's it's actually a lot simpler than I think people think it is. Like we had about a two hour phone call figuring out what our name should be. Mm -hmm. uh, and then once we figured that out, we figured out our mission. We kind of already had that in mind, but really solidified that. And then applied for an LLC, built a website and had a launch party. 
granted, there's a lot more involved in that. It's not like right, we did right. it. Because each, no each of those things you said were yeah. about 10 steps right. deep. Right. But we, we start, we actually launched our production company, I think, within about six to eight months of that original incident. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Just because, again, she's and she's in Portland, Oregon. Robin is, and she's a wonderful and incredibly talented actor, director, producer. Like she's a jack of all trades. Jack of all trades. I'm trying to think of like because jackass, the, jackass just doesn't, just does doesn't not, sound that right. Sounds like you're saying jackass, but <laughs> right. you mispronounced it. Um, so she's a, a Jill of all trades. She's a badass of all trades. Okay, Jill of all trades. Okay, right. all right. Yeah. Um, so she already has a lot of the experience and the chutzpah to kind of make stuff happen. Yeah. And since I am so darn impatient and enthusiastic, I think that's why we had this happen so quickly. And the first thing we actually did was this really gorgeous music video, um, Anna Tavel's The Question, which is about transgender experience mm. and about how a person going through that experience of realizing that they're in the wrong body, how they break through that wall to find their true self. Um, so Robin did that in Portland um, and with another co-director, they created that music video. After that, we wanted to make real uh, progress on good chemistry. We couldn't make the feature, so we thought, let's make a short to start. And then that's where we just finished, literally on Friday at right, midnight. Right, right, right. You got the green light. So now production will start moving forward with that. Yes. It's such a money game, whether you're a nonprofit, whether you're just trying to do a short film or a five-minute festival submission. Mm -hmm. It's all about finding money. What was that fundraising process like for you? Um, it was exhausting. I mean, at first, like, neither one of us had done a crowdfunding, crowdsourcing thing before. And I actually would recommend if anybody has a project that they're really interested in having created, I say crowdsourcing is a great way to do it. But I think the main thing is figuring out a realistic budget for that and mm -hmm. making sure that you have a following to support it. I think those are the two key things. So... What we did is we actually worked with a trainer who kind of coached us through what the crowdfunding process would be. We did all of the, you know, stuff leading up to it, building more of a social media following, making sure that we were connected with the people that were, uh, would be invested in our story, in our mission, in the specific project, kind of connected those dots before we even started the campaign. Oh my gosh, all this stuff. I'm now I'm realizing I'm like, oh, it was fine. It was no big deal. I'm like, no, I'm exhausted. <laughs> Just, Just talking, talking about it. About it. <laughs> But one nice thing along the way was that you had a little uh, Great British Bake Off I appearance. I know. Oh, my God. Andrew now, Smith from 2016, Great British Bake Off. Now, he is not only a good cook. He's nice to look at. I'll just I'll just say hey, that. I'll say that. I yeah. will agree with that. Yeah. But how did that relationship, how did that connection come about? I literally saw him post something on Instagram that was for LGBTQ in STEM Day. There's a, you know, because now it's like National Dog Day. Right, there's national a National Small everything. Dog Day. Like, it's, yeah. every, I can't keep up and it makes me furious. You, you know, there there is a National Day calendar and a website. That is there, there? There's a website well, devoted to this. I feel like we need to be told all this stuff ahead of time. If yeah. somebody could just, like, some big, like, big brother email everybody, be like, get your content ready. These yeah. are the days that are coming up. Google National Day Calendar, and you can find what every day is, whatever market you want to hit, yep. there's a day for it. Yeah. And so there was, I'd already followed him because I love Great British Baking Show so much. 
Oh, yes. Because it's everything. Um, so I already was following him on Instagram and then noticed that he had posted something about LGBTQ and STEM Day. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll reach out to him because it would be great to have a little donor perk that we could have for people that were participating, like a little cookbook or just something fun. And so I just reached out to him on his website and said, hey, we're making this short about women, LGBTQ and minorities in STEM. Uh, I saw your most recent Instagram post. I loved you on Great British Baking Show. I was wondering if you would be interested in donating a cookbook, a signed cookbook for us. And about a week or so later, he's like, hey, he emailed me back, was like, my manager sent me your email. I would love to help out. And he's just like the sweetest man. He's so nice. I didn't get a chance to like talk to him. uh, But our email correspondence back and forth, just the most polite and kind person. He's lovely. Yeah, I mean, he was that way on the, the yeah, British Bake Off, right? And then, and then his social media because I follow him as well. Yeah, but yeah, whenever I saw his posts on Adventures Films, I think I gave a little squeal <laughs> whenever I saw it because I was like, "Wait, wait, what? How do you know? How do wait, I?" I <laughs> Literally, it was just, it was just. I saw the post, I sent an email, and he got back to me, and here we are. But it's so great that he also posted about it as well. So he, oh, yeah. he so he didn't just donate the cookbook and that was it. He really took advantage of his own social media influence yeah. and, and posted about yeah. your film, which was, was great. Very, very kind about it and supportive. And I think that, you know, also too, it's something that he, and even in like a little video he did, he very much is an advocate for representation in STEM of any and all sizes, shapes, colors, orientations, etc. Um, and I think that's something that actually too, there was a really, I've started now following a bunch of women in STEM profiles on Instagram because of this project. Um, the majority of representation of people in STEM in the media is men, mm-hmm. white men specifically. And so, again, this script that I've created was based off of an 80s film that was about college students in, you know, in the science arena. And I was like, what if we just flip that on its head? What yeah. if we literally gender flipped it? And then the whole thing just came to life from there. So... Yeah, it was just a really fortunate connecting of the dots. And I'm so glad that I had the courage to ask and that he had an open heart and was willing to connect with us, too. And this seems like a good melding of this passion for for women and minorities in STEM and then using an artistic way to express that message and that theme. And then because it's now about women and minorities, now your film is going to feature well women and minorities. Exactly. And so then both from an artistic side, which is great to, to get more diversity there, mm-hmm. you're also pushing a message on STEM. Mm-hmm. Good to get diversity in there. So it, mm-hmm. it, it's a meshing of both of those ideals. And the fact that it all originally came from someone telling me that there's no place for you in this. R- right. It's like there's also <laughs> a like, very big absence of representation in STEM. And I'm like, yeah. even though it's literally on opposite ends, I was in the gym, I was in the theater. Because were you in science at no. all? No. Oh, no. <laughs> no. My brain is very lopsided in that regard. And so there's something that I am not, uh, I do not tend towards is actually ended up being the subject I ended up focusing on is really funny too. Um, But I was like, if there's any way that we can benefit any kind of representation in either of these spectrums, I would love to be a part of that much. I love being an actor. That's what I'm called to do. Mm -hmm. But learning that constraint breeds creativity is what started me writing started out with Mm -hmm. this musical parody, then led into the feature film, which led to the short. Um, Had you always been a writer or was that something that this meeting with the manager spurred you on to? 
That's actually something that started when I moved to New York. Um, because when I got here again, there, there was just nothing for me to do. Not in that I, you know, couldn't go to auditions and, you know, couldn't do, uh, dance classes or acting classes or things like that. It's just that those opportunities were so few and far between that I felt like I was just suffocating creatively. And so I just, I literally saw a movie and thought that would be such a fun musical. And just decided within like a week of seeing that movie that I was going to start writing that as a musical just for the fun of it, just because why not? Um, before that, I think the only thing I had written was at my super like posh high school. We had a playwriting class at my high school. Oh, wow. Okay. And so when, you know, when I was a senior, I took this playwriting class and they even had like this playwriting festival of all the plays that were written like at the end of the year. Um, and so I took that class. I think that was actually the first and probably only playwriting class I've ever taken. And so everything else that I have learned in terms of writing has just come from experience. From doing it. From what I know works yeah. and what I know works for comedy, which is that's my niche. That's what I'm good at. And that's what I feel I really can sing at. Yeah. And so being able to replicate that in writing ended up being a creative outlet for me while I was waiting for other opportunities to arise. And then it just kind of took off from there. Once I was done with the musical, I had a stage reading for it just to kind of hear how it sounded. It actually ended up failing the Bechdel test badly, which made me horrified that I had written something that was so awful in that regard. What what was it about it that was so bad? It was just like, it was everything that you see in superhero movies that make the women seem like they are useless. So you had fallen into so that trap. I literally fell into the trap because that's what I had been fed. And I was yeah. hard on myself at first, but then I was like, but that's what I've seen. Yeah. And so then I was actually very fortunate to have invited several of my friends to come and listen to it. Uh, and they provided feedback at the end saying, the women in this show have nothing to do. And when they do have something, the only thing they're doing is singing about lost love. It's there, there is very little for them to do in this. And I thought, that's so gross that I wrote that. <laughs> and so then I thought, okay, I gotta go back to the drawing board on this one. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, it's still a work in progress. I think I'm on draft 11 at this point. I don't even know if anything's going to come of it, but I also am using it as a lesson on how to take what I know from experience and from exposure, really dissect it and figure out what do I want this to look like in the future? How can I contribute to making a artistic society or I guess an artistic community that supports all different kinds, shapes, sizes, orientations, et cetera? Right. And what can I do to create that? Um so yeah, writing didn't happen before New York. And and but it's been continuing since yes. you've been here. Yeah. Yeah, since yeah. moving here I've written a musical, I wrote the feature film, I wrote a short, I've also written a web series, and then we've also got our podcast So I Married a Cinephile, which that we had never done anything like that my husband and I before moving here. Right. That was another thing that was like, well, we have nothing going on creatively and we need to fill that void. Right. So that's where the podcast came in. As with everything, I I think we all kind of feel burnt out sometimes even this profession that we love so much of, of yeah. acting and creating it can wear on us and we get tired and and that's something that you're taking a break from the podcast for now mm -hmm. because you're trying to kind of find that spark again right right exactly and i think that's something too where i 
I also noticed that I was going to auditions when I first moved here. I was going to auditions as much as I could. I was exhausted and I didn't find that joy anymore. It's, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like that whole thing of if it doesn't spark joy, you can get rid of it. I think there was somebody actually posted on Instagram about do that with your audition book. If the song doesn't spark joy for you anymore, it's not going to do anything for you in the room. Yeah. One of the greatest things that I got from a casting director was whenever I was kind of talking to him about auditions and kind of feeling stuck, he was like, do songs you love. Mm-hmm. Because you're not going to book the job most of the time. You're, you're, it's audition after audition. So go in there doing things that you absolutely love, whether or not the people behind the table love it that day or not. Mm-hmm. I think there really is something about making sure we're feeding our own creative souls rather than just trying to pour it out to other people and hope they take it. Right. And I think that's another thing, too, coming here a little bit later in life, is that I tried to subscribe subscribe to what a lot of people who are 10 years younger than me are doing. And I wasn't able to do that. And that it, at first, I was really upset at myself that I couldn't hang. But then I got more gentle with myself and thought, well, what's a way that I could work smarter, not harder? Mm -hmm. And so that's when pay to plays came in. That's when doing workshops came in, learning about my brand. Um, And also too, that's when creating new work for other in other different medias and other different areas came in. Um, And that's when actually when I met with my friend Doug Shapiro to work on my branding, he said, I believe it was Glenn Close that said that she's got three checkboxes that have to come into play for any project that she's either offered or auditioned for, which she needs to check two out of the three boxes, which is it needs to pay a lot. It needs to have people that I love working with or really want to work with and haven't had the opportunity to or his content, or is a project that I'm really excited about. If it doesn't check two out of those three boxes, it's not going to be it's worth out. it. Yeah. So because of that, I've realized that I might work less here. And that's okay. Because the work that I do do is going to be work that is going to check two out of those three boxes. Right. So it'll be worth it. So I think it's just managing that expectation. And I think that's actually ended up creating longevity for me moving here because I feel it's very easy for people to just go to every single audition, burn themselves out, and then not know what to do. They're out of money. They're out of energy. They don't have the joy for it anymore. So I feel like auditioning in not audition seasons, but auditioning with intention and working on projects with intention actually creates longevity for your career versus burning out, going back home, going, what do I do now? With these projects that you've been able to write, control yourself, kind of have your own hand in, how is that influenced or how is that bettered those times whenever, okay, now you're doing a project that someone else is, now you're auditioning, you're, how have you taken the lessons you've learned from one area and applied it to the other? I think honestly, being on the other side of the table has lessened a lot of the pressure when it comes to auditioning, because A, it's let me enjoy the audition because, oh my God, it's so fun that I get to audition. I had an audition for Indecent uh, a couple of weeks ago for a role that I didn't really necessarily think I was right for, but I did not care. Like it was <laughs> so fun to just delve into that character, really sink my teeth into it and be that character for four like self tapes. <laughs> Oh my God, it was so much fun because it was a project I was really excited for. Mm -hmm. It was for a company that I'd always wanted to work with. And while the pay wasn't great, that was two out of the three boxes. Right. And so even to audition for that created that joy around it. Um, But actually, a guest that was on here earlier, a friend of mine, Glasgow, 
he, like he had said, you have to have that audition, have that experience, really live in it, and then let it go. That's yep. something that I have become better at. And I think he's absolutely right. Otherwise, it just becomes exhausting and it's not sustainable. So I think being on the other side of it, knowing that there are people coming to audition for this short film who are so talented and are so great and they're not right for the part because I wrote the part and I know what the part's supposed to be and how it serves our mission, it doesn't make them any less talented or any less right for a different version of this project but not right now. I think if there's one lesson anyone can take away from, from auditions or, or at least think about when they're going to auditions is that not booking it is not necessarily a reflection of your talent. Most of the time, it's like they just need someone who's a bit softer and you're a big personality or mm -hmm. any number of variations. And so it just has to do with that day. That audition, right. that just wasn't the right one. And it's one of those things, too. Again, now being on that side, I'm able to be more gentle with myself. When I go into audition, I go in prepared. I go in with leading with joy and an open heart. And then I leave knowing if I get called back, if I get the gig, that's great. Then I was meant to. That, that I was the right fit. But if I didn't, it doesn't lessen anything about me. So and like, actually, to your point, when I auditioned originally for the office musical parody, I was called in for Michael Scott. And it was me, one other gal who was currently playing Michael Scott, and like, seven guys. And then they whittled it down to several guys, and then me and Sarah Barron, who plays Michael Scott. And I didn't get it. And I was so excited that she got it, though. It didn't. It almost didn't matter that I didn't get the role because I was so stoked that a woman was playing Michael Scott. Right. It made me so happy, and it makes the show work because it's very hard. Kind of like if The Office was around nowadays, it wouldn't work. Like if it didn't exist before, hashtag me too. It it kind of doesn't work nowadays. Right. Right. So um, so I was just so excited to see that a woman got the role, and I was. I was really sad that I didn't get it, but I was excited for her and excited for the show. And then a couple of months later, when one of the other actors had to leave the show, they called me up and said, we would like you to come in for audition for this track and understudy Michael Scott. So the no right then didn't mean no forever. No, we're not considering you. Forget it. And it never does. I don't think no. unless you go in there and really ruin it, like make a point of offending everybody personally <laughs> in the room. No just means no right now. Or even silence doesn't mean we're not thinking about you. Yeah. Because like, like for me, the, the classic example of this is that, you know, those cattle calls that you were speaking of where you go into the, the chorus call and they line you up oh 10 God. people at a time and they just kind of like, they have the resumes out, they look at the resume, they look at you and they go down the line and say, all right, we'll keep you, you and you, all the rest, thank you. And you're just like, Ugh. and I was one of those, thank you. Me too. And I was just let go. Mm -hmm. And then a year and a half later, then they cast me for the tour. Right. And too, like when I moved so, here, I thought for sure, because I was a dancer in Portland, Oregon. I am a hardcore mover here. <laughs> right. I am a good mover. Not a great mover. I am a good New York mover. Mm -hmm. I can nail a grapevine any day. Right. But when they're like, okay, we're going to go through this, that, the other thing. All right, here you go. And I'm like, I don't, I have no idea what 17 of the words were you just said. <laughs> right. I have no clue. Right. So that was another thing is like managing expectation of like what the auditions are like here. It's a, it takes some time to figure that out mm -hmm. and then to put all that hard work in and not get something and not get called back you're like what am i doing wrong and you're probably not doing anything wrong but you don't know that because you just moved here you just yeah. got here it's hard and it's scary but again being on the other side of it now 
as someone who's creating the work that is needing to be cast and who is casting this stuff and sees a vision for it, I'm much more gentle with myself when it comes to auditions. And also, too, I'm much more picky about what I go out for because I don't necessarily want to go out for something that where I'm either I'm not going to be compensated properly for my time working with people that I don't really want to work with or doing a project that doesn't really matter to me. Life is really short. And if it doesn't speak to you, then what what are you doing? Right. You know? And it seems like that now because you're on this other side, you're also creating content, that that time also makes you more picky when, when auditioning. Because mm-hmm. it's like, well, I don't need to book everything that I audition because I have these other opportunities I'm creating for myself. And so when one side maybe is working out, then it kind of makes up for the other side that isn't. And it can go back and forth and balance itself out. Yeah. And also, too, I've had to go through periods of working part-time jobs and then working full-time jobs. I am devoted to working a nine-to-six job for at least a year right now because I know that's what me and my family need in order to be able to stay here. Mm-hmm. And if we if we tried to push through and just muscle through and do it for the suffering love of it, we wouldn't be able to stay here and we probably wouldn't be able to recover all that well after being here. Right. We would probably put ourselves in a dangerous situation. Yeah. Um, financially. Uh, but well, and physically and spiritually, like, let's face it, some of this stuff that we do is really, really hard. And if we're constantly going in and constantly getting what feels like, like rejection and we're working our butts off, emptying our bank accounts, and just not finding any fulfillment or any answers or any solutions from what we're doing, then that makes us question all of it. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. But because when we're so worried about either our physical health or our financial yeah. situation or just our own talent, all these different areas that we can worry about and think aren't good enough, then that factors into all the other areas. Mm-hmm. If I need this job because I need to pay rent, then that's not a great place to audition from. And also, too, like, my body is not a 21-year-old body anymore. No, thank I you. I can't do it. Like, my... You know, you know what? Here's the thing. I, I mean, it may sound horrible. As an, I never wanted to dance. Like, like it's, it's, it's not... It's not ha- <laughs> It's not how I express I can myself. Dance if I want to, but I don't want to. Yeah, so. <laughs> you know, I've I've done the dance of Rob Ashford, and I've done the dance of Studio Trujillo. So I've worked with phenomenal choreographers, sure. and I've done their their choreography. Yeah, but do I want to do that? Right. And do I want to like arch my back in such a way that I have to like lie down for a right? Minute? <laughs> and there, I mean, that's the thing too. It's yeah. it's again, it's about what you enjoy and what your stamina is. If yeah. you're exhausted and you have to do all of this insane routine to be able to make your body recover from an intense show, but you love that show and you love that part, great. That makes all that recovery stuff worth it. But yeah, that's the other thing is that it's just like what there's so much that goes into who we are as people. I think that we as actors tend to think that that's our only identity. You want to be able to walk into a cocktail party and when someone says, oh, what do you do? You want to be able to say, I'm an actor. And let that be it (laughs) when you're so much more than that. And you're also like, you got to hydrate. You need to eat well and go to the gym, get eight hours of sleep and do all this stuff as existing as a healthy human being. Right. And then everything that it takes to be an actor on top of it, it's it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. So I think, too, there's a layering in that a lot of people fresh out of college or I know for me, even when I first moved here, you think it's okay to sacrifice your well-being for your craft, and it's not. It's okay to take time 
to focus on other areas of your life and let those areas of your life be the season that needs to be focused on, not necessarily letting the audition season of the year be what is dictating your entire life. Right. Like you said, if you're not in a good, healthy place for that, you're not bringing your best self into the room. And you're probably not enjoying yourself as much as you would if you're bringing your full self. Being just in the studios, you know, around, just in the waiting room, just watching other people and how they're handling oh auditions, God. it, 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 it kind of drains me. Yeah. You know? I have to put in my earbuds and do something else because it's exhausting seeing that tension and anxiety just living in the room. It's mm-hmm. just thick with it. It is wonderful when you can not only be that person, but see it in others of just a, a relaxedness. I think that also helps our artistry, especially as actors. And as writers, I'm sure you can attest to that, that when you're relaxed, whenever your brain is kind of like allowed to just be, yeah, then more creative ideas come to you. You're able to be present in the room with that mm-hmm. song or that scene. Right. And the idea too, knowing that now I've created this standard for myself of the work that I want to audition for compensates well is a project that's exciting and people that you want to work with. That's the kind of opportunities that I want to be able to provide for other people. The idea that I have written a short and that we've cast two minorities in that in the two main roles, that's important to me. The fact that the actual feature film that I've written is mostly women and also to several of the characters are LGBTQ, trans, like you name it, we're very much open to what is brought to the table and fits the role. Knowing that I've set that standard for myself as a performer, I want to be able to provide opportunities for anyone and everyone that checks at least two, if not hopefully three of those boxes. Yeah, that makes that that has ended up being more important to me than being an actor. I will always be an actor. That's something that I again, it makes me happier than anything else. But to know that I'm providing that opportunity for somebody else that's like, you know, passing it on to your children or whatever. Right, it's I don't the know. whole idea of paying it forward yeah. and, and, and continuing on and creating the kind of work and work environment that you want for yourself. Exactly. For other people. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. You have certainly added a lot to this podcast. Oh, good. And so I, I greatly appreciate you sharing of all of your, your, your big, bad, wonderful self. I know, here. right? <laughs> it's funny. I was very nervous to get on this because I know that, like you said, uh, or like I said, you've brought on an awful lot of people that I very much look up to and really admire all the work that they've done. And I was like, oh, little old me on this podcast, like, what right do I have? And I, was cutting myself off at the knees a little bit. But my husband reminded me, he's like, there's no point in doing that. What mm-hmm. you're doing is just as important. And this is where you're at in your journey. And how you define success doesn't necessarily matter based on anybody else's journey. You are where you need to be at this point in your journey. You're yeah. exactly where you need to be. Well, believe me, the same thing happens for me being on this side of the mic. I've, <laughs> I, I've, I've, I've reached out to people who've said yes. And I go, Really? Are you sure? <laughs> like you don't even know me and you just said yes to come on my Okay. okay. <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not gonna question it. But yeah, yeah, I've I've had some some named people yeah. that have come on. Some of them have actually been my friends, so that's a little easier. But right. th- there have been quite a few that m- much like you did with, with Andrew. You yeah. just saw him on social media, mm-hmm. you reach out and you just see what happens. Yeah. And 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 it is kind of crazy when you get people that are at a, at, at the next level or next five levels up mm-hmm. and and they they agree and they come on and they're and they're fresh and inviting and inspiring and and so i think that each of us has that potential mm-hmm. which is why i'm so happy to have you on is that we're as your husband said we're all at different levels we're all at different places and we need to see 
people at the beginning, at the yeah. middle, at the apex of their career. Right. We need to see everything in between so that when we hit each of those levels, we know what to expect, what what's coming next. Yeah. Because just... there's always something coming next. There's always an as as Andre De Shield says, there's there's always the next mountain to mm-hmm. climb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just normalizing every part of the journey, the start, the middle, and the end. I love that. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much, Megan. This has been great. Of course. Thank you for having me. Well, as always, thank you for joining me and Megan today. As you could hear from her story, she is one busy lady. She took one setback and used it as a motivation to propel her into so many other avenues of her artistic journey. To find out more about her and to get more information on her various projects from adventurous films to her own work as an actress, you can find those links in the show notes. And there's also a link to the WinMe website. That's winmepodcast.com. And you can find ways that you can support and contribute to this podcast. And I would especially love to hear your Why I'll Never Make It story. I found Megan on Instagram and she was sharing bits of her story and that's what led to that blog and now to this interview with her today. So if you have a why I'll never make it story that you would kindly share with me and hopefully with the rest of the Winnie community, I would love to hear from you. Again, that's contact.winmepodcast.com. Well, I have been your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, for yet another episode. Please join me next week when we talk to the one and only Dave Jackson. He's a Hall of Fame podcaster, and he's going to bring a lot of information and experience to you in case you've maybe been thinking about doing what I'm doing, getting behind a microphone, talking for (laughs) minutes, hours on end, interviewing people and sharing stories about subjects and topics that you are passionate about. To finish off this episode, I wanted to end with a little behind the scenes, give you a little insight as to what it's like to record and the, well, sometimes certain things happen in in recording that have to be edited out. Editing is probably one of the biggest time-consuming elements of producing a podcast. So this conversation began as something that Remy pointed out in the previous episode about the Christmas tree that is in my living room. And then you'll see why I had to edit this part out. I hope you enjoyed this little snippet of what goes behind the scenes of why I'll never make it. I've provided water. There's, there's this cute there's little a, Christmas tree in the right, corner. There's a Christmas tree I still. I love that, by the way. <laughs> that makes me so happy. I'm like, it never stops. The spirit of Christmas is always here. Well, I would like to think that we had some grand plan for that. It really just came down to, oh, it's January. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that. Oh, it's February. Oh, okay, we'll get to that. March. Okay, really, we need to get to that. <laughs> This and is then like the it just New York never apartment happened. version of the Christmas light staying out too long. <laughs> right? Yeah, because by March, it's like, well, why are we taking it we're, down now? Let's just leave it up. It, we're close enough. Yeah. Might as well. <laughs> exactly. No, it totally makes sense. So just, I, oh. just call. No. Yeah, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's a perfect thing because I forgot to do this as well. So that'll help that. Okay. And now we'll turn this off. Actually, maybe I'll just let it go for a couple of minutes. No, it's fine. I'm good. 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. 